Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. If you happen to have a Bible with you, then a great place to turn would be uh, to 2 Timothy, which is kind of seven-eighths of the way through the Bible that you've got in front of you, and to chapter 3. And Because the, the big question today, and we're in the middle of a series that we've called Heavyweights, Big Questions, and the big question is, um, can I trust the Bible? And people always say, Christians always say, the Bible says... And that's kind of the trump card, isn't it, in any argument. The Bible says, and, uh, but those of us who've grown up, been taught and educated in a kind of liberal secular environment would say, well, yeah, but the Bible says, so what, you know? Uh, how can we trust that this is actually accurate in the word of God? And, and when the Christians say it's the word of God, what in the world does that mean? And more than that, not only can I trust it, but do I trust it? Do I trust it for my life? Do I trust it for my decisions? Do I trust it for my kids? Do I trust it for the things that seem to go wrong? Do I trust this book? See, I grew up in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. It's a bit high. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And that's kind of the trump card, isn't it? I can trust that God loves me, that he's interested in me, that he wants a personal relationship with me. I can trust that all that stuff that I've read is true because the Bible tells me so. But I also grew up in a culture that said that ain't necessarily so. (laughs) Ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so, said George Gershwin, and then famously, Bronsky beat in the 1980s, if any of you remember that. Exactly. (laughs) It ain't necessarily so. That stuff that you learn in Sunday school It's not necessarily so. You can't really trust the Bible. And skeptics have always said the Bible is basically a a bunch of fables and stories that are are just kind of built on one another. It's like your old wives' tale. You know, you've got a story, and then by the next time it gets told, it increases and grows and develops, and you can't trust that this is actually truth. This is the Word of God. And yet the Scriptures say this, 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, which is just a stunning statement. The Greek word is the word theonustos, and it means out of the very breath of God, out of the very heart of God, out of the very mind of God, God has spoken, God is speaking This is his word. This is for us. This is for now. This is for life. I mean, it's it's a huge, huge thing to say. This book is written in two main languages over 1,500 years using three quarters of a million words. And we are 
being led to believe this is God's word to us. It's actually 66 books, not one book, although it's a unity of books. It has one message. It's written by maybe 40 different authors, ranging from kings to fishermen. And, and it's got a variety of different genre and style, from poetry to history to letters to ap- apocalyptic literature to wisdom literature. It's just rammed full. And we're supposed to believe that this is the word of God. It's a huge, huge ask for us. Can you trust it? Well, what are we asking? Are we asking, is it accurate? Because that's a fairly relevant question. Is this accurate? When I read this stuff, is it what was originally said? You see, the process of getting us to this, this book bound by leather is a threefold process, according to the scholars. There's, there's revelation. God speaks out of his breath, out of his mouth, out of his heart comes the word of God. There is transmission, which means that what gets said, then gets copied and copied and copied and copied over generations, and then there's translation. So we then get a translation of that original language, which was usually either in the Hebrew or in the the Greek, and then we have this book, which will either be a word-for-word translation, like the King James Version or the ESV version of the Bible, or it will be a thought-by-thought translation, which will be like the, the NIV or the New Living Translation of the Bible. So we've got something here which it is claimed goes back to the original, but is it accurate? Well, Scripture copy laws were incredibly stringent. You started to learn to be a scribe back in the day at the age of about 14, and you didn't graduate until you were about 40. Because you had to learn to do it right. Because this was the word of God. And every letter that you wrote down would be visibly recognized and authenticated. And if there was one mistake in a whole scroll, the scroll would then be burnt and thrown away because you couldn't get this thing inaccurate. The guides were, were, were incredible. But still you'd say, hey, but Surely the story is just built one on another. How do we know that what we've got now corresponds to what was originally written? Well, that's a legitimate question, but in 1947, a little shepherd boy herding sheep around the Dead Sea area threw a stone into a cave and hit pottery in a place called Qumran. And then he discovered these pots that were rammed full of scrolls, scrolls of every book in the Old Testament, some written only 25 years after the original event. And we have a whole um, scroll full of the prophet Isaiah, which corresponds exactly with what we have in this book. There is no book in history that has been more scrutinized, that people have been more cynical about, that has been more doubted, that has been more looked over than this book. You know, we, we have no issue with the fact that Julius Caesar in AD 55, BC 55, came to Britain. And we know that because we have nine copies of a book called Caesar's Gallic Wars. And no historian around the world will tell you that didn't happen, that someone made it up. But we have 25,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. And everyone wants to say, well, that 
didn't really happen. Can it really be true? Can it be trusted? So is it accurate? Is it authentic? I mean, did the things that we read about in here, did you know, Noah's Ark, Daniel, Den of Lions, Walls of Jericho, did, did these things actually happen or, or did someone just make them up as stories and that they sound like a great idea and they, good, they give good moral teaching? Well, let me read this to you. There's an archaeologist called Sir William Ramsey who spent most of his life, 30 years of his life, trying to disprove the gospel of Luke and show that Luke was a fraud. And when he finally published his writings, he said this, that Luke was one of the greatest historians of our time. Donald Wiseman, professor of London University, said this, no fact of archaeology so far discovered contradicts the biblical record. Could it be that the Bible is not some kind of spiritual fairy tale? And is, is it consistent with itself? Yeah, because the Bible is full of these incredible prophecies, isn't it? There are over 1,000 prophecies in the, in, in the Bible, and, and, and many of them have been fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies regarding the person of Jesus Christ. It's incredible stuff when you begin to look at the New Testament and see how it maps on to the Old Testament, where he will be born, Micah 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem, in Judea. How he will be born, Isaiah 7, 14, he'd be born of a virgin. How he would die, Psalm 34, verse 20, that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, verse 12 and 13. That his side would be pierced, but his bones wouldn't be broken, Psalm 20, just again and again and again and again. The things that were said in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament in the person of Jesus over 300 times. Estimated odds, if you were a betting man, which I'm not, so don't send me emails, of that occurring. It's it's kind of like forecasting the lottery a hundred times, week after week after week after week. Someone would begin to suggest that you had insider knowledge. You do. It's in the word of God. God's got a book out. But maybe that's not your question. And you can find all that stuff in better books than I can ever begin to give you time for. Today. Maybe that's not your question. Maybe, maybe your question is this. I, I kind of believe this is the word of God, but it's boring and restrictive and suffocating. Because I grew up in a church where, where it was, the answer was because the Bible tells you so. The answer was you could never reason it. You could never have doubt. You could never question things. And, 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 and it felt like kind of as if you were boxing me in and suffocating me and telling me I had to believe certain things. And one thing had to fit on top of another. Maybe that's your question, but that's not what the Bible is trying to do. At the end of his gospel, John writes this. He says, there are stacks and stacks. This is my interpretation. This is not a literal translation. This is a paraphrase. (laughs) There are stacks and stacks and stacks of more things that Jesus did. In fact, so many that we'd be here forever and ever, says John, if we were to actually catalog all those things. But... And this is a translation. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is saying that God is speaking through story to offer you faith. And that faith will bring you life, not death. 
It'll bring you freedom, not restriction. And it's a story. In other words, it's not a science book. It's not to be read like a textbook on the shelves of an ancient library or a mechanical fix-it guide for the human life. This is the story of God. This is the story of God's dealing with humanity. God doesn't give us a, a set of instructions but an account of his dealings with people. Why does he do that? Well, I think for two reasons. Firstly, because this is dynamic, it's real time, and it's contextual. And that's the way he works. The way he works varies. He is, listen carefully, he is consistent in, in, in his actions, but he tailors his interactions. He's consistent in his actions, but he tailors his interactions. He's always consistent to being the one that he said he would be, but he always deals personally with individuals. So he's not going to deal with you the same way he's going to deal with me because he knows you better than you know yourself and he knows me better than I know myself and he's always wanting to deal with us and he don't, doesn't want to give us this simplistic fix and say, well, it looks like this, just do this and you're going to be okay. Secondly, I think he gives us stories because he wants us to work at this. He wants us to wrestle with our faith. He wants us to struggle with stuff and he wants us to, 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 to work at relationship. Why? Because he knows that any relationship worth having is worth fighting for. And he wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you to act like a robot in the command control mechanism where he's God and he's just going to sort you out. He wants to walk with you in the garden in the cool of the day. He wants you together to work out how your finances are going to work. He wants, he wants you to work out how you're going to respond to him. He wants you to wrestle with the stuff through complexity to get to a simplicity that you can work with. He wants you to wrestle with how do I bring my kids up in this day and age. He wants you to work out how you're going to contextualize his word. He wants you to work out how am I going to posture myself towards culture because he's a God who is always speaking. He's not just that he has spoken. He is speaking and he will speak. And he's desperate for a relationship with you. It's real, four-dimensional, not one-dimensional. That's why he tells story. And this story he has written, and he is writing, and he will write. And it's a story of love, and it's a story of rescue, and it's a story of rebellion, and it's your story, and it's my story. It's a story of hope, and it's a story of future. And it's the story that we find ourselves in. This is the word of God. Can you trust it? I think a whole lot better question is, do you trust it? Not can you trust it. I mean, you can get books on can you trust it and the archaeological evidence and the prophetic evidence and the manuscript evidence and you can read all that stuff and take notes and put them in the margins and, and, and then they're brilliant stuff and you can get hold of them. But I think a better question is, do you trust it? What's it trying to do? You see, I, I studied French for seven years at school and uh, I've got some skills. They're not that good, but I got some skills. I, I had a friend, I've told some of this before, but I had a French teacher who made us all stand on the tables and on the chairs and said, repeat after me. Mon, ma, me, ton, ta, te, son, sa, se, votre, votre, vos, notre, notre, no, le, 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 with an S. And... I do that all day, and I've got some skills. I can tell you that I'm going on a holiday on a boat. 
I can ask you, I can ask you in French how I get to the port. I can get to the, the, the Sandicad initiative, although I don't even know what that is. I can do all that kind of stuff because I've got that stuff, but, 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 but I don't apply it in any way to my life. So when I get to France, I just speak English loudly in a French accent <laughs> as if everybody's stupid and then just look stupid. Hello! Can you tell me how to get to the bread shop? <laughs> Sounding like some kind of Pakistani Indian English word with a bad idea. You know, whatever it is, I do that stuff the whole time because I don't apply the stuff that I know. And I think God's greatest concern, maybe even for today, is not that you actually say, yeah, technically, scientifically, I trust that this really is the word of God, that it's the most historically true document the world has ever seen, that it's incredibly beautiful. I don't think he cares that much about that as long as you've got it. I think he really cares about whether you're living it, but whether you stand on it, whether it flows out of you. Because let me, let's just study together, and you knew we'd get there in the end. Let's study together in 2 Timothy and see what the Word of God is trying to do. Because there are certain things it's not trying to do. But there are certain things it is trying to do. Paul writes to Timothy and he writes talking about godlessness. And do you know, if we needed to have a word, it would be around this stuff, around godlessness in the last days. How people are going to behave and how people are going to think and what God is doing in that time. And in amongst all this stuff... He says this to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, Paul is saying, Do you know, the word of God it's, it's, it's there to lead you to God. It's there so you get to know God. The word of God is there so that you grow in knowledge of God and look more like God. The word of God is there so that other people get to know God through your life. It's very, very simple. That's what the word of God is for. Let's stop using it for things that it's not for. It's for this. I want you to know God. It's there to convict us of rebellion, convict us of brokenness, convict us of sin, and draw us to Jesus. The Word of God is sometimes really hard. It doesn't say things we want it to say sometimes. It says the truth. It says you're broken and you're in rebellion and you will never find meaning and you'll never find purpose and you'll never find life outside of the originator and the author of meaning, life and purpose. It just makes sense. God has a plan for your life and if you walk away from that plan, you're always going to end up in a mess. And that's what your friends and people who live in Edinburgh and people who live in Scotland and people who are broken want to hear. They actually wouldn't say that and they wouldn't communicate it like that. But when they come to the end of themselves, they want to know there is an answer. They want to know there is a God who loves them and has a plan for their life. They want to know there is a plan and there is a, there is a rescue plan. They want to know there is a Savior. And this word will lead you to a Savior who will change your life. That's what Paul says. That's what this word is about. That's what they want. It's, this is bread. This is water. This is breath. This is life. And, and, and then he goes on to say it's to train you in looking like God. 
to train us in Christian living, he uses four words in, in verse 16, and we'll deal with it quickly, but he uses the word teaching, which is positive instruction in the things of God. In other words, what is right according to the word of God, alignment. He uses the word rebuking, which is convicting when we step onto a path that will hurt us and hurt others around us. The word of God will rebuke you and say, no, that's dangerous, don't go there. He uses the word correcting, which is about helping to restore us to the right path, forgive us, get us straight, and then he uses the word training in righteousness, which is a wonderful phrase. It means training, actually literally, it means training you in restorative justice because that's the heart of God. That's what the word righteousness means. Training you in restorative justice. Training you so that you participate in what God is doing in this world, which is restoring all things to its original design, which is restoring people and places and time and situations to align itself correctly with God. That's what this book is trying to do. And there is a massive myth out there that says Christianity is about making you happy. It isn't. It really isn't. There, there, there is an there indirect result of following Jesus which means that you become happy, usually. But the direct result of following Jesus is that you become holy, that you become more like Jesus and that you share with him in his glory and in his sufferings in his identification with this world and in his mission for this world. That's what he's trying to do. That's what the word is trying to do. If you let it live in you, that's what it will do and it will help you to live the kingdom, verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, every good work. In other words, every moment of your life, if you allow this word of God to breathe in you and to live in you, you're gonna be doing good stuff. It doesn't mean that four or five times a week if you have a really good week and you read your Bible early in the morning, then you're gonna do good stuff. No, it means that out of you, if you live in this word, there's good that's going to flow out of you if the Bible is doing its job. If you allow it to, to invade your heart, get hold of your mind and your purposes, you're going to do good stuff. How can you identify someone who knows the word of God? They do good. They don't just quote scripture at you and shout at you on street corners with placards on them. They just do good stuff. Ah, you know the word of God because you're doing good stuff because it's just pouring out of you. Doesn't that sound cool? And doesn't that make the word of God suddenly a bit more attractive? If it's not just trying to condemn us and align us and you know, restrict us, actually it's trying to say, I want you to live. And the way you live is you get to know God who is good and has a plan for your life. And the way you live is you get to look more like God every single day of your life as the fruit of the Holy Spirit grows in you. And the way that you live is you do good to everybody, everywhere, all of the time. That's what the Word of God is supposed to do. So here's the big question after that little rant. Big question is this. Can you allow this to be the authority of your life? 
And so it's a big question because we tend to run away from those kind of questions in our day and age. Let me, let me just give you a little exposure to my sad life. Maybe it's because I'm a man, or maybe it's because I'm a human. I find living under authority a really difficult thing. So for me, it looks like this. I'll put the satellite navigation on, but I'll disbelieve it. Because I kind of know better, and generally, I don't kind of know better at all, if I'm honest. Just occasionally I beat the sat-nav, but usually not. Nikki will say, on your way home from work, can you pick up this, 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 and this, write it down? I'll say, I don't need to write it down, I've got it, you've only given me five things to get. I'll get to wherever it is, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, and I'll get three, I'll get the first three, and then I have no idea. And I just kind of freestyle. And buy whatever I fancy at that moment in time. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't kind of play well uh, when, you, when you get home. Flat pack furniture. I mean, honestly, I go to Ikea. Ikea is not the boss of me, so I do not need their instructions. In fact, Sweden is not the boss of anybody. And I'll take, if you're Swedish here today, we love you, and you're very welcome. But I take the instructions and I throw them away because, you know, there are only 12 screws and four bits of wood. Consequently, I have jars of screws from Ikea all over my house and, and cabinets that don't tend to stay up for very long because I've refused to sit under authority. And, and it's, it's one thing when it's flat pack furniture and shopping lists and satellite navigation and directions. It's another thing when it's your life and the life of your family and the life of your kids because you chose the wrong authority to live under. And you say, I'm not living under any authority. Yes, you are. Totally are. If you choose to not make this the authority of your life, you will live under some other authority, whether it's culture, what everyone else is saying and what everyone else is doing. That can be the authority of your life. Or it, it might be tradition for some of us. My parents did this, my grandparents did this, I'm going to do this, they're going to go to these schools and do these things. We live with that authority in our life. Or some of us, we just say, well, we mistrust everyone else's authority, we're going to live by reason. I've worked this out and I've rationalized it, therefore that's going to become the ultimate authority in my life, what I think. Or some of us, maybe most of us, most of us who are younger, <sighs> wow, I just said that. Most of us who are younger will say, well, it's feelings then. It's how I feel in any given moment that becomes the authority of my life and we know that lies to us. Or, or maybe it's experience. I've, I've tried that before, I'm never trying it again, or I'm doing that, or that worked for me last time. And it just becomes the authority. And although we don't like to think of it like this, we place the whole of our weight of our life on these things and they will lie to you. And they are false authorities. And God says, hey, I'm a good father and have a great plan, and I'm a powerful God. And I know you, and I love you, and I've got a book out. And the book is full of my wisdom for your life. It's a love story in which you get to play. It's a blueprint for life in all its fullness. And if, if you will stand on the word of God, here's the really cool thing. All those other authorities which we have to mistrust become suddenly helpful. You know, culture's got some real good wisdom out there, so has tradition. Your head knows some good stuff and your heart often doesn't lie. And your experiences will help you understand whether to taste that, see that, and do that. But only when you have a filter and a plumb line and an authority that you can weigh these things up against can you trust them.
And God says, I've got a book out. And it will train you. God's word. Do you know there is greater freedom under authority than there is outside of it? We, we live with a lie that we're going to have freedom if we have no authority. It's just nonsense. You know, you, you can't play a good game of football without rules, corner posts, lines, and offsides. Forget the offsides. But you can't. You know, it's okay for a minute or two. You can't ski off piste until you've learned to snowplow on the nursery slopes. You need the rules. You need to learn how to do things that enable you to live life in all its fullness. And God says, this is my word. How do you test then whether you're living with the word of God as your authority? Let me try this. There are things in the scriptures that I find really difficult and I don't understand. There are things that clash with my experience of life and my understanding, my feelings, my wisdom, and what culture is saying, that I find, I reckon one day I'm gonna to get to heaven and go, God, what was that about? Now, I was supposed to be a preacher and I didn't understand that stuff and how do we work on suffering? How do we understand suffering to people who are completely innocent? How do I understand human sexuality? How can I, I can't get my head around this kind of stuff. How does this work? And what I have discovered is I have a choice. As I walk towards these questions with all my, my doubts and my, my, my concerns, I have to decide, am I going to lower my understanding of the word of God to my current experience of life? Or am I going to ask God to raise my experience to my current understanding of the word of God? See, I see so many people today who are saying, Do you know what, I don't understand why some people feel that they're gay, and I don't understand how God sees that as wrong, and I don't understand this stuff, but the Word of God seems to say these things, so therefore I'm going to reinterpret the Word of God to mean this in order to make me feel comfortable about the way I feel. And we'll talk about sexuality. We, we preach about it quite a lot. We'll talk about it a number of times, and we'll talk about it probably, almost certainly, definitely next Sunday evening. But you have a choice about your authority at that point. Is culture going to be my authority or my feelings going to be my authority or my reason going to be my authority or is what I understand of the word of God going to be my authority? What are you standing on? What are you standing on? And what are you doing? See, the big question is not what do you think? The big question is how are you going to live? Jesus says to the guys who became his kind of arch enemies, the Pharisees in John chapter 5. He said, my issue is this. Paraphrase again. My issue is this. It's not that you don't understand the word of God. It's not that you can't quote it. It's not that you haven't got an incredible biblical knowledge and a great theology. It's that you do not come to me and have life. In other words, you don't live this thing. It doesn't breathe in you. It's not real for you. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to introduce you to a father who loves you trying to help you live in lockstep with his Holy Spirit. I'm trying to help you introduce other people to a God who has plans for their lives. I'm trying for the kingdom of God to flow out of you in such a way that you do good in every and any situation. That's what the word of God is for. And I think that's all I've got to say.
Scripture says this in John's Gospel, chapter 20. I think it's probably going to come up on the screen. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we close, I, I want to ask you whether you have life. Whether you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Whether you allow the Word of God to live in you in such a way that life pours out of you. Or whether it's become stagnant and stale. What are you standing on? Is it culture or feelings or reason or experience or tradition or is it the Word of God? Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Holy Spirit, this is your word. Not only have you spoken, but you are speaking, and I ask you to speak truth to our hearts and lives. I pray that you give us a love for your word. I pray that you'd help us to stand the weight of our life on what you have said and what you are saying. And I pray life over us. Father, I pray for the one or two here today who don't yet know you. They go, I don't get this stuff. I pray life. I pray that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in his name. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The way in which we're going to respond to this is we're going to meet around the Lord's table. And that means, um, for those of you who've perhaps never seen this before, it means that there was a moment in the scriptures, the story of God, where we're told that Jesus took bread and broke it with his followers, those who were walking with him. And said to them, this was just a few hours really before he went to a cross and died. And he said to them, this is my body. It's broken for you. They really didn't understand, I think, what he was talking about. And then he took cup, the cup after supper, a cup full of wine. He said, this cup is the cup of the new agreement. It's in my blood and it's for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, all of you. He's saying, eat life, drink life, eat restoration, drink forgiveness, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, are thirsty and hungry, believe in me and get life, remember that my son died, remember that he's alive again, remember that he is authoritative because he's God, and place your life in his. So we're going to worship Jesus, and uh, we're going to offer bread and wine. There'll be a station here, here, two at the back, and one in the gallery. And uh, you just come, come on your own, come with your family, come with your friends, come eat, and remember that because he was broken, you can be whole. Come drink, and remember that there is nothing that he cannot and will not forgive you from because he's a good, good father. 
So let's worship together.